0: Turn to Daniel 6, please. Daniel chapter 6, toward the end of your Old Testament. Some of you are wondering, I thought we were in Ezra. I thought we were walking through Ezra. I was just getting a hold on Ezra. Where are we going? Well, we're going to take a little break from Ezra, but not really, because by the end, we're going we're to we're see why we're not really taking a break from, break from Ezra. Okay, so just, just hang on to Ezra. Keep Ezra in the back of your mind. Daniel's best known for what story? Daniel in the lion's den. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The book of Daniel, however... Far more—it's far more than a children's story. I hope you know that. I thought about doing a series at some point uh, called "Adult Bible Stories," you know, and taking all these old Daniel and Lions Den stories and helping us make sure that we, as parents, know that they're not just—I uh, was about to say dumbed down—that didn't sound right. Uh, not just condensed stories for our children. They have—they have meat in them for us. So we're going to look at that. It is, in fact, uh, the Old Testament equivalent, many scholars believe, of the Book of Revelation. Uh, John Walvoord, professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for many, many years, well-respected uh, theologian, calls, and I think rightly, the book of Daniel, the keyhole to biblical prophecy. Think about that. That's a great image, In it? The keyhole to biblical prophecy. Uh, Daniel 6, in our text for today, the famous lion's den story, it's set. Don't miss this. The setting, the context for this lion's den story is in the midst of biblical prophecy. Okay? Don't let that go today. Specifically eschatological prophecy in other words Daniel gets a peek not just into the future of the nation of Israel and how God is going to redeem them but he gets a peek into the the more distant future the more final future of the whole entire world Daniel's Daniel's blessed in that way now let me say something about prophecy especially in regard to end times theology the knowledge of future things is always the knowledge of future things is always biblically given to God's people as a word of comfort and encouragement. Let me say that again. The knowledge of future things in Scripture is always given to God's people as a word of comfort and encouragement. Amen? Yeah. I know of no passage of prophecy in Scripture that isn't, that, that isn't true of. That that isn't true of. As I think about uh, what we need uh, from this pulpit, myself included, as I think about what we need, and, and please notice I didn't say what we want, because many of us, we want many things. This time of year, uh, everything that's going on in our world, some of us come, uh, me included, and we, we would like some things to be declared, thus says the Lord from this pulpit. Um, but as I've been thinking about what do we need, okay, what do we need from this pulpit, it seems to me that we could use a little perspective. Uh, that's probably the best word I could come up with, specto, around perispecto. Specto, it's our vision. It's what we see, getting a full understanding, a full glimpse, to see all the way around, to see completely. We need perspective, perspective that guides, okay? Perspective does something. It causes something. It is effectual. Perspective that guides our activity and our attitudes, both our activity and our attitudes. Now, our text today is not specifically prophecy, but it is set amidst the most prophetic book, perhaps, in the Old Testament. Okay, If you know Daniel for more than just the Lion's Den story, you understand this. Harry Ironside, uh, another well-known scholar, he said this, that uh, this story of Daniel in the Lion's Den, set amidst uh, a book of prophecy, this story even, although it is historical and it is true, don't forget that, it is a true story, he says that it is typico prophetico. And what that means is that it is live in the times that are near the end, to live correctly. Not only will we, be, will we be challenged by the story, which is true, as I said. Don't miss this. This is a true story. It's not just a made-up fairy tale that uh, you know we can, we can uh, parallel to a whole bunch of different stuff. It, it's an actual true story. That's what partially makes it so amazing. That God intertwines such truth and principle for the ages through a true story. God's amazing in that way. Not only will we be challenged by this true story, we can be comforted. We can be comforted by the story as it helps us to gain some perspective in a world that is a world of shifting sands right now, right? Uh, That's how many of us feel that our world, and in particular our country, is perhaps unstable. I know this by the emails that have been forwarded to me, the many emails that have been forwarded to me. You know this by the many emails that you're getting forwarded to you financial worries, the terrorist concerns, the multiple wars, perhaps most consuming our current attention, the political unrest of our own country, all causes for serious concern and and attention. Uh, Some of you know that I I teach in, uh, one day a week, I teach in high schools, local high schools, I teach an abstinence program. I go in through the Gwinnett Pregnancy Resource Center with a group of other, uh, mostly ministers incidentally. And we go in and we teach eight days of abstinence education. It's an amazing thing that we're still allowed to do it, and it may get cut off next year. But uh, at any rate, uh, when I go in, there's one particular day as I'm teaching. uh, The whole lesson is trying to get the kids, to uh, mostly ninth graders, to see past their own little high school world. And I use an an illustration to help them understand this. And I I usually talk to them about uh, how they learn how to drive, how we all as teenagers learn how to drive. And when we as teenagers learn how to drive, we look a little bit something like this. Ten and two, right? White knuckling the steering wheel. We're about this far from the dash. Our eyes are this big. And where are we looking? We're looking right in front of our little car, at the road just in front, about 10 feet from, you know, the little emblem you got there, your Kia, your Benz, whatever you got, for about 10 feet. That's where we're looking. Or we're white knuckling it, eyes real big, kind of peeking out the window, watching that little yellow line go by and making sure we're in our lane. That's typically how we're supposed to drive. And I say that to the kids, and they all kind of chuckle because they realize to some degree or another it's true of them. And I said, where are you supposed to look when you're driving a car? And they're like, oh, way down the road. All around, actually. You're supposed to have your head on a swivel. You've got to see everything. You've got to see uh, the little old lady with the shopping cart. You've got to see the kid chasing his ball. You've got to see if there's a fork in the road. And I had a girl a couple weeks ago. I won't tell you what school she was at. She's like, a re- like a fork? Just drive around it. I was like, whoa. <laughs> so... I said, no, you know, like a split in the road, but maybe there's a stoplight. Maybe uh, somebody's going to plow into you from behind. Maybe somebody's going to swipe, swipe you, cut off. All this stuff, you have, to, you have to see it all. You have to have a big perspective. And then I tell them, I said, we drive like that, don't we, when we first start out to some degree or another. The, the, more, the more important things is just going to increase, et cetera, et cetera. And they start to get that. They start to get it. This past week, I think it was Thursday, I was at North Gwinnett High School teaching this. And as I was saying this in one of the periods, it just occurred to me as I was preparing all this. I said, This is exactly us, church. You know, I use this illustration on teenagers, but it's a great illustration for the church. Many of us are driving our Christian lives concerned with what's going on right here around our little world. We have no perspective, our sights have not been raised because we have no perspective, because we don't see the big picture, things surprise us. Those forks in the roads, those potholes in the roads, they surprise us. None of it surprises God. In fact, throughout prophetic scriptures, He tells us, He gives us glimpses of the end from the beginning to comfort us and say, hey, don't be surprised. Here's what to expect. God over and over gives us this big picture perspective so that we know and we can live accordingly. Many of us don't. Many of us drive our Christianity based on the circumstances that immediately surround us. And we have to have, as believers, we have to have that constant, uh, That constant. the guy who taught me the Bible, uh, he used to always say, we've got to have that constant north star in our lives to sail our ships by. To navigate our lives by. And we know that is scripture. So let's look at Daniel chapter 6. Can I show you this? What an amazing story. We're going to make it through the whole chapter, if we have to be here till one, because I thought about splitting it up, but I got, you got to see all this together. we got to have it all together, okay? I don't, want to mess, I don't want to spread it over a couple messages, because I think you need the full impact of this, and, um, and so we're going to go through here pretty quickly, and there's things that we're not going to be able to spend time on, but uh, just hang on, okay? Hang on, and if uh, we don't cover something, that's why we have life groups. Go to a life group. Get in a life group, and you're going to get into more detail. You're going to challenge each other. You're going to hold each other accountable. You're going to examine this even closer. So that's my life group commercial. Daniel chapter 6, and it seemed good to Darius. Now let's back up. I've got to take you back to the end of chapter 5, okay? Because there's another guy before Darius that we have to know something about, all right? Daniel is going to be under the reign of Darius in our story, but I want you to see what happens just before this guy comes into power. Rusty, is Rusty back there? No? Put that uh, picture up there for me, Adam. Remember this guy? Look back in chapter 5, verse 30. This is the previous king. This is Rembrandt's rendition of a guy named Belshazzar, the Chaldean king. Verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar, the king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age 62. It's the end of the Babylonian reign. There was Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel served under him. Now, Belshazzar and Daniel served under him. Nebuchadnezzar didn't bow the knee to God and God struck him made him crazy. Had him out feeding like the cows in the field. He came to his senses and he honored God in the end. Belshazzar didn't learn from that story. He takes takes the holy things from the temple. At night, verse 30 of chapter 5 says what? He's gone. He's dead. You're not going to get away with that. Verse 31, Then Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about age 62. Incidentally, Daniel chapter 2 says this is going to happen. Daniel chapter 2 says this is going to happen. Daniel's living in that prophetic time period. And he's seeing these things come to pass. Well, he's faithful to Nebuchadnezzar. He's faithful to Belshazzar. And now he's got a new guy to deal with. Chapter 6, it seemed good to Darius. He's going to change things up here. To appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. We go from a monarch to a democracy, in a sense. Darius realizes that, hey, uh, monarchs can go bad really fast. Why? Because we live among sinful men. Do you understand that, that a monarchy would be the ideal? Even though, you know, we live in a democracy here and we've made democracy popular and we've made it grand and we made it, you know, the world model, in a sense. But ideally, a monarch would be the most efficient. The problem is we can't find a guy who's holy to put in there. All we got are a bunch of sinful men. And we put one sinful man in there, and now he's got complete control. Things are going to go bad. So what does Darius do? He decides we're going to change it up a little bit. He says, I'm going to delegate a little bit. We're going to have some, some layers of authority here. And he's got 120 governors. He's got, he's got above that, just in case those guys are corrupt. Did you miss that? That these satraps, verse 2, might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Because he still knows that even those 120 guys, there's still sin there. So we've got to get three more guys over them, of which Daniel was one. So you see the layers here. Now we've got a change of government. We're going to try a different system of government. Let's see if it works. Verse 3. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps. Now, in all this chapter, here's what you need to be looking for. As we, as we cruise through this, here's what you need to look for. You need to look to Daniel and see how does this guy, how does this foreigner under a pagan king, how does he live? How does this foreigner live in a pagan land? What does he do? How does he respond? Things are shifting under his feet. What does he do? And you look for, you look for principles in this guy's life. We find one right here. He began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps. meaning he began elevating himself. It's it's said that Daniel at this point in his life is in his 80s, maybe reaching his 90s, all right? Not only does he have seniority, his life shows superiority. Look at what it says. Look why he was elevated. He possessed an extraordinary spirit. That's the third time that that's said of Daniel in this book alone. He had an extraordinary spirit. And because of it, the king... Coming promotion, verse 4. Let's see what happens in the hearts of these 120 guys who are supposed to be trusted. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. Does this sound familiar at all? See also Ezra. See also Ezra. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. And here's why. Check this out. This is a key phrase. Inasmuch as he was, what? Faithful. Faithful. Now, in the context of the verse here, that doesn't mean that he was faithful to God necessarily. It means that he was faithful to his duties in this pagan land. A foreigner in leadership in a pagan land of extraordinary spirit They look for dirt on this guy. They start to mudsling. Let's say, we can't let this guy be elevated. We can't let him be promoted. Let's dig some dirt up. And they look and they can't find anything. Inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence, no corruption was to be found in him. Not only did they not find any. Be clear. Not only did they not find any, there was none. Uh, Interesting that in the book of Daniel, uh, for the person Daniel one of the few people in Scripture that there is no sin notated of his life. Now, rest assured, Daniel was sinful, just like the rest of us. But there is no place in Scripture that marks Daniel in his sin. Very interesting. Not only could they not find anything to bring charge against him, there was nothing. He was faithful to his job. He was faithful to his duties in regard to government affairs. Look at verse 5. Then these men said... We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel. They finally come to their senses. They realize there is no dirt. But then they hatch a plan. Unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Does this sound familiar? See also Ezra. We can't get him on the inside. Let's attack him from the outside. The first ploy, the first attack doesn't work. Let's adapt and overcome. And so they do. They hatch a a new trap for Daniel. These commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. They appeal to his vanity. Does that sound familiar? See also Ezra. The accusers of those who would rebuild God's temple. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the precepts, or the prefects, and the satraps, the high officials, the governors, have consulted together and the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction. Now, what is that called? That's called a lie. Why? Did all of them get together? Did all the governors? Did all the senators? Did all the leaders come together? No. They conveniently left one guy out, didn't they? Just happened to be one of the top guys. Daniel wasn't involved in this decision. Vanity and verse eight. Now, O King, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may be so that it may not be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Once it's put down, it's in stone. Even the king has to come under the law. This is the, this is the Magna Carta of Daniel, right? That the king now is not law. The king has to submit to law. And so as soon as he puts it down in writing, even he has to obey it. That's the ploy. That's the plan. Verse 9, Therefore King Darius signed the document, believing that they all brought it in agreement, mind you. King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. He thought it was a great recommendation. Verse 10, now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he didn't know previously, somehow, the story doesn't tell us, he finds out that Darius signs this thing. Look at the response of this foreigner in a pagan land attempting to be faithful to a pagan king. Look at his response. And when Daniel knew the document was signed, he entered his house. Now, in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem. The inference there is that those windows remained open. He had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he, underlined this next word, continued kneeling on his knees three times a day the word continued implies that he'd been doing it already the fact that his windows were open meant that he this was a habit for daniel not just that he prayed and he gave thanks before his god as he had been doing previously this may be the key to the whole chapter this verse his windows always open toward his homeland, toward his true homeland. His heart was always towards his true homeland. He continued kneeling three times a day, just as he had before, praying, thanking God, just as he had before. And look at what happens in verse 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. This is without Daniel now, mind you. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for the next thirty days, it is to be, he is to be cast into the lion's den? Isn't that what, isn't that, what that thing, you had you sign the other day? Yeah, that's what, that's what you had me sign. That's right. The king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Even he had to abide by it now. Verse 13, then they answered and spoke before the king. Well, Daniel, incidentally, by the way, king, Daniel, the king heard this statement. He was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel, not to the lion's den, but delivering him from the hands of his accusers. As soon as he was told, he realized what had happened, he realized the consequence. And even until sunset, all day, until the sun goes down, he kept exerting himself to what? Rescue Daniel. Verse 15. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, that it is a law of the Medes of the Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. You signed it, you have to abide by it. Verse 16. Then the king gave orders. And Daniel was brought into his presence and cast into the lion's den. The king spoke and said to Daniel, now watch this, amazing, amazing verse. Your God, Daniel, whom you constantly, are you getting a picture here of Daniel? Of his consistency? Your God, whom you constantly serve, will himself deliver you. This this pagan king believes something not just about Daniel but he's come to believe something about Daniel's God. Amazing. 17. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet ring of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Then the king went off to his palace and spent the night. Look at how the king spends the night. He spends it in mourning. He fasted and no entertainment was brought before him and his sleep was fled from him. He was up all night. There was nothing right about what went down. 19. Then the king arose at dawn and at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near to the den, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, you see it again? That's what the king knows about Daniel has your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions that's not sarcasm that's, that's a cry of hope 21 then Daniel spoke to the king O oh, king live forever <laughs> you notice that's the same that's the same phrase that the, uh, his accusers used when they approached the king who's faithful to the king who really has the best interest of the king in mind O oh, king live forever Live forever, because I'm sure alive down here. Verse 22, look at what Daniel says. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth. And now, by the way, uh, Chuck Swindoll, he, he says in this, uh, in this passage right here, he says, now if I was Daniel, and the king comes and he yells down, Daniel, are you all right? How you doing? Oh, king, live forever. But about there, what a testimony. In the midst of shifting sands in Daniel's world. What a testimony to have. Verse 23, Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. And no injury, incidentally. No injury. Whatever was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Lest we forget the reason why. 24, Then the king gave orders. And they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children and their wives, into the lion's den. There are those who say that the reason Daniel didn't get eaten is because the lions just simply weren't hungry at that time. Look at what happens here. See if you think these lions were hungry. And they cast them, their children, their wives, into the lion's den, and they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. 25. Then, here's what Darius does. The king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men in every language who were living in all the land. May your peace abound. I make a decree. He's going to set a new law now. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel and no other God. Why? For he is the living God and enduring forever. In the midst of shifting sands, kingdoms coming and going during the life of Daniel, he's the living God, endures forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? What a story. What a story. Can I give you some uh, can I give you some implications, at least at least for my life. I hope they're true for you as well. Let me tell you what I'm gonna do. As governments come and go, I'm gonna keep an extraordinary spirit. As the best laid plans of men and their governments come and go. I'm going to do my best to keep that extraordinary spirit that Daniel carried with him. I'm going to stay faithful on the inside and the out as best I can, that there be no dirt to be found or even hidden. I'm going to expect that sinful men will be sinful men. As monarchs or as democracies. Remember what I said? The only problem with a monarch is. We can't find a guy who's holy enough to put in there. The only problem with a democracy is now we just got a whole bunch of sinful people. 16. Not just when bad things come, not as a response. That's going to be the norm. It's got to be the norm. I'm going to trust God. As far as it depends on me, I'll be at peace with man and God. And I'm going to trust God. Not to keep me out of the lion's dens. That was never promised to Daniel. But to stick with me through the lion's dens. As we live obedient to our God, we make decisions based on our biblical priorities and not our priorities as Americans even. Um, If we get thrown into a den of lions, so be it. What's our job? Just like Daniel. I'm trust that God's going to stick with us through the lion's den. I'm going to trust that he'll deal with evil men. I'm going to use every facet of my life, not for my own benefit, but for his. I'm going to live like he is, verse 26, the living God that endures forever, a kingdom that will not be destroyed. I'm going to live with that eternal mindset, trusting in that eternal kingdom, not in the kingdoms of men. I'm going to trust that he can use my life however he pleases in the grand scheme of things. Look at the last verse chapter six last verse of chapter six says this so this daniel enjoyed success in the reign of darius and in the reign of cyrus the persian where have you heard that guy's name before see also ezra chapter one verse one now in the first year of cyrus king of persia in order to fulfill the word of the lord by the mouth of jeremiah the lord stirred in the spirit of cyrus to issue an edict that says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth, and he has appointed to me to build him a house. Now, where do you think Cyrus got that idea from? You know what I think? I think Daniel, who is faithful to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel, who is faithful to Belshazzar, Daniel, who is faithful to Darius, continues his servanthood, faithful foreigner, now under a guy named Cyrus, who, incidentally, will issue the decree so that the whole nation gets to go home. I'm going to trust that he can use my life however he pleases in the grand scheme of things. Like Paul, I'm going to long for his appearing. And in the meantime, I'm going to live as if, well, I'm going to live as if I've been told the end from the beginning, because we have. I'm going to be comforted and encouraged by what God has divulged to the saints. I'm going to be a faithful foreigner. How about you? Uh, I can't pray it any better for our church than one pastor has already prayed it for his church, so I'm not going to try. Let me just read you his prayer and echo my amen. I have a vision of the church as a people who are sojourners, strangers, exiles, refugees in this world. And the city of our destiny has God for its builder and maker. I see the church as a free people because our minds are not conformed to this age but are transformed by the mercies of God so that we are not enslaved by the fashion or fad or any other form of covetousness. I have a vision of the church with strong desires not shaped by the persuaders of this world but shaped by the messages that come from the fatherland. Oh, for a church with a single and radical allegiance to the king The king who himself said, my kingdom is not of this world.